when I look back on my wedding day, most of what I remember from that day is a blur. We were married on Sunday afternoon, right after church. We had worship, and then our church hung around, and we kept on going. It was a short ceremony uh, there at the church where I met my wife. We had a simple reception afterwards where all of our friends and family, actually it was a, it was a potluck uh, reception. They all made food and brought their fine china and silver out, and it was awesome. We had a great time. You know, the groomsmen and the bridesmaid made their speeches, and after some fanfare, my wife and I drove away to embark on life together. But if there's any single moment that I remember clearly in all of that busy day, if there's any point that's forever stuck in my mind, it's this. It's when I was standing on the floor next to my pastor, and suddenly the back doors of the church burst open, and there stood my bride. She was beautiful, arrayed in a beautiful white dress, with her father there to her side and her brothers, <laughs> her brothers were holding the door open with these huge grins on their face. I'll never forget that moment when I saw her. It's that moment on that day that makes me know it was the most beautiful day of my life. Maybe the most beautiful moment. One of the important metaphors in the Bible is that of Jesus and his bride, the church. We, as the people of God, are depicted as the woman engaged to be married to Jesus. And one day when Jesus comes back, he's coming for his bride. He's coming for his wedding day. And there will be a glorious wedding ceremony with an amazing reception afterward. The difficulty with this metaphor, though, is that when we look at ourselves... And when we look at other Christians, when we look at the state of the church, the bride doesn't look all that beautiful. As we, the bride, are preparing ourselves for the wedding day, as we look at ourselves in the mirror, we don't see beauty. Often we see sin, divided hearts, a patchwork of failure and struggle and doubt with faith somehow stitching it together. We don't see ourselves is worthwhile to God, but is somehow pitied by God. When we look at the bride today, we don't always see her beauty. It is though a veil covers her face, and we can't perceive how beautiful she really is. Christ's bride, though, is beautiful. The reality, though, is that her beauty is veiled. Verse 12 in 1 Corinthians 13 says this, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. When you look at yourself, when you look at other Christians, when you look at the church, what we see now is not the finished product. We see a veiled Image. We don't see the full picture. We see a dim reflection. We only know in part. What do we want to see when we look at ourselves? What do we want to see when we look at the church? 
We want to see ourselves and the church washed clean, mature, perfect, righteous, but that sure doesn't seem to be the reality of where we are now. In this life, we still sin. We still struggle. We still doubt. We are still afflicted by our flesh, by the world, by the enemy. Until we're with Jesus, we're always going to be struggling with these things. But that doesn't mean that the bride, that the church, that you are not beautiful in the eyes of Christ. Despite our sin, failures, and struggles, Jesus has already made us beautiful. What Jesus has done for his bride is beyond comprehension. What all did Jesus accomplish in his life of obedience, in his sacrificial death, and in his victorious resurrection? Well, he forgave our sins. He cleansed us of our guilt and shame. He freed us from our slavery to sin and death. He gave us a new purpose and a new direction. He destroyed the enemies of our souls, both demonic and fleshly. Jesus, in all that he did, has brought to naught all the problems of this world. War and drought and famine and sickness. He has reunited us to God. He's kept the law on our behalf, making us righteous. He's become a mediator for us. We could go on for hours and hours and hours talking about all the things that Jesus has accomplished for his bride. There's frankly so much that he's done, we can't comprehend it all. We're not eternal. Our brains don't have the capacity. Perhaps God hasn't even revealed all that Christ accomplished for us. We cannot begin to grasp the fullness of what Jesus did for us. But here's the challenge. Even though Jesus took care of the problems of sin and war and disease and pain, we're still confronted by them because he hasn't come back yet. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2 that even though Jesus is seated on the throne, even though everything is subjected under his control, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And so we live in an era of tension between the resurrection and the second coming. What has been accomplished in the cross has not yet fully come to be. So you have been declared righteous through faith in Christ. So as your disobedience was credited to Jesus and he was counted guilty for your sins, so also Jesus' obedience was credited to you so that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. You are righteous because of what Jesus has done. But I look at my life and often see unrighteousness. The scripture also declares, we saw it earlier, that you have been crucified with Christ. Your flesh has been declared dead and defeated, and yet our flesh hangs on, and it afflicts us. In Christ, you've been declared alive, but one day you're going to die still. So what Jesus has inaugurated in his death and resurrection, we still await its consummation and completion when Jesus returns. So here we are, living by faith not by sight. Living not in fulfillment, but in hope that Jesus is going to keep his word. Here we are trusting that Jesus is going to finish the job that he started. And this tension between the resurrection and the second coming hangs like a veil over our face. And as a result, sometimes we don't believe the gospel is true. 
We don't believe our sins have been forgiven. We don't believe that God loves us. We think that our sins and our failures are just too great. The bride doesn't seem beautiful. Do you all remember the story of Jacob and Laban from, from Genesis? So Jacob uh, was a son of Isaac, and he fell in love with a beautiful woman named Rachel. She was so beautiful that he worked for seven years for her father to have her hand in marriage. And when the wedding day came, Laban threw a huge feast in celebration. And when the sun went down, Laban sent his daughter into Jacob's bedroom to consummate the marriage. But what Jacob didn't know is that Laban sent in a different sister. One who was not beautiful and whom Jacob did not love. It was dark, he didn't know, but then the next morning came. And he realized, what happened? I married the wrong girl. I married the ugly sister. Her face was veiled to me. And I think that you and I live with that exact same fear, that somehow when Jesus gets a good look at us, when he sees us face to face, he's going to say, oh no, I made a huge mistake. I got the ugly one. If you were honest with yourself, most of us think that Jesus is not enamored with our beauty. No, he believe, we believe he's disappointed with us. Answer this question honestly, not out loud. What does Jesus think of you? Like the sky was to part and Jesus was to come down from the right hand of the Father and he was to look at your face knowing your whole story. And he was to give his assessment of you. What would he say about you? What does Jesus think of you? Our tendency is to think he's not pleased with us. He's disappointed with us. That he has a sense that there's more of us that need, there's there's more that needs to be done. The fact is we don't believe that Jesus quite got the job done. And we believe that when Jesus lifts the veil over our hearts, that he will find nothing but muck and sin and ugliness. And as a result, we feel like there's more that needs to be done. And so we ask ourselves, how? How can we make ourselves more beautiful to God? What can I do to make myself more acceptable to Jesus so that when I get to that day and I see him face to face, I'll at least have given a good college effort? Well, here's what a lot of us do. Some of us use our spiritual gifts. To try to make the bride more beautiful. The broader context of 1 Corinthians 13 is a discussion about spiritual gifts. There was a lot of uh, conflict and division in that church about who is the most spiritual. And who could show themselves to be the most spiritual and mature in the church. And the means of doing that was their spiritual gifts. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. And then verses 8 through 12. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, they have not love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 
God gives every Christian gifts and skills for serving the church and for serving God. And in these verses, we see a few of those gifts pointed out. We see uh, prophecy mentioned. We see tongues mentioned. There are others, knowledge, generosity. Why does God give these gifts to his people? They are always for bringing glory to God and serving the church. But that's not usually, we, we don't usually think of our gifts as, this is a way I can love God, this is a way I can love the church. Instead, our spiritual gifts often get propped up as a way to beautify me. They're not here to bless the church, they're not here to bless God. They're here so that God will find me beautiful, so that other people will look at me and say, oh, what a mature Christian, look at how great they are. And So we think things like this. Maybe you'd never say those words, but you think, if I could just be a better Christian, then I'd be acceptable to God. Maybe if I teach Sunday school, then I'll be pleasing to God. If I could be a deacon or an elder, then God would find me beautiful. Maybe if I went on a mission trip and really took a risk for God, if I were a better person, if I were more generous, maybe then I wouldn't feel so ashamed of my sin and my past. If I could just pray better or read my Bible better, maybe then I'd feel loved and worthwhile. We do all these sorts of things to make ourselves look more beautiful, more acceptable to God and others. But there's an error in this way of thinking. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, God already sees you as perfect, as accepted, and as beautiful because of Jesus. Jesus has already healed his people and made you beautiful. So how does Jesus feel about you? When that which is perfect comes, when Jesus comes back and all things are made right, when the veil is removed, what are you going to find? He is delighted with you. He loves you. You are already beautiful in his sight because of what he has done. Not because of what you and I have done. Jesus has already made you beautiful. Even though you may not see it yet, your sins have been taken care of. You are clean and pure and accepted by God. You are a rightful heir and member of God's family. Maybe you don't feel that way. The bride doesn't seem beautiful to you, but how can you know and experience that God loves you and that he's delighted in you? How can you live in light of this gospel truth? One day, this is many years ago, I was meeting with a mentor and he asked if I was struggling with any sins. I said, well, of course I am. He asked me what my sin was. And I said, well, I've been using bad language a lot more than I really think I should be. It's kind of out of line he said, well, which words? I said, well, I mean, pretty much all of them. He said, that's not what I asked. I said, which words? I said, you want me to, to like tell you the curse words I've been using regularly? And he said, yes. So I went through my long list of, of, of bad words, including some that would certainly make you and I blush this morning. And I finished and he asked, well, how do you feel now? I said, well, I feel ashamed. (laughs) I just confessed this in front of you and God, and I feel embarrassed. I feel guilty. And he responded, you shouldn't feel that way. Because right now, your heavenly Father delights in you. He loves you. He's pleased with you. Because you're not justified by your actions. You're justified by the actions of Christ. So even when you are in a deep pit of sin, when you are speaking 
out of anger, when you're being crass or when you're being selfish, when you're in the deepest pit of sin you can imagine, even then, if you believe in Jesus, God delights in you and you are beautiful. Your relationship with God is unchanged because of what Jesus has done. That was a huge moment for me to recognize that the work of justification, that Christ has made us righteous through faith alone, that that is solid and that the Father looks at us as beautiful, that he sings over us with joy even when we're in sin. That's astonishing. Enjoying the love of God purchased for us through the work of Christ is not something that comes easily to every Christian. Frankly, it probably doesn't come easy to any Christian. And that conversation with my mentor was only the beginning of a very new and real enjoyment of the love of God. So let me take you on the journey that I went through to, to enjoying the love of God in a new way. First, we have to be honest with ourselves about the magnitude and darkness of our sin. You can't know how big God's love is until you know how big and dark your sin is. As Spurgeon once said, if your sin is small, then your Savior is small. But if your sin is big, and it is big, then you have a magnificent and big Savior. If you don't think you've got a sin problem, let me just burst your bubble. You're mistaken. And, Christian, if you think you see the darkness and magnitude of your sin, you don't know the half of it. (laughs) Our sin is way worse, way bigger, and way more deeply rooted than we could ever know. And the sooner we know that, the better. When I said all those curse words out in front of my mentor, I couldn't escape how dark and damning my sin was. But the funny thing is, as I started to see growth in that area and in other areas of sin in my life, I found other sins deep down that were way worse, way more toxic, and way more core to kind of who I was and how I thought. So if you want to experience the love of God, you have to first be honest about the magnitude and darkness of your sin. Now, granted, that's not something you can conjure up in your own self. That's something the Holy Spirit does. As we read the scriptures, as we interact with other Christians, we see our sin more and more. It takes time. But if you want to enjoy, truly enjoy the love of God, first you have to see the magnitude and darkness of your sin. But second, you have to be realistic about what you deserve. Sin makes us enemies of God. Every time we choose our own path rather than God's, we are committing treason against the potentate of time, against God himself. And that is worthy not only of death, but of eternal death in hell. So our sin is not only greater than we can imagine. No, the debt we owe to God is beyond what we could ever pay. We can't forget that. Again, how do you learn that? Through the ordinary means of grace, through the scriptures, through biblical teaching, through discipleship. We see more and more clearly what it is that we deserve. We don't deserve love from God. We deserve death and hell. If you want to experience the love of God, you have to first be honest about the magnitude and darkness of your sin and then be realistic about what you deserve as punishment for that sin. But third, believe that Jesus' death has forgiven your sin and restored you to God. In the cross, Jesus was punished for our sins, for my sins. He knew what he was dying for. He endured our shame and our guilt. So if you believe in God, your guilt has been taken away. 
Your shame is gone and he has given you his righteousness. There is nothing standing between you and God anymore. God's anger over your sin is satisfied and there's nothing more that needs to be done. Jesus has done everything needed on your behalf. Behind the veil, the bride is beautiful. Everything that was true of Jesus in his humanity, not in his divinity, but in his humanity, is now true of you. As he was righteous, he obeyed the law of God perfectly. So you are righteous through faith. As he was loved by the Father as his son, now you are loved as his child. Everything that was true of Jesus and his humanity is now true of you. What I realized in that conversation with my mentor is that I often fail to believe that Jesus got the job done. I feel like I've still got something to be ashamed of, but he bore my shame. I feel like there's something I still need to do to make Jesus love me more. But Jesus did everything through his obedience to the law on my behalf. I often fail to believe that Jesus got the job done. And here's what I've learned now. I'm still learning. The Christian life is a process of believing and hoping that behind the veil, you and we are already beautiful. It's deeply important that every day you realize what Jesus has accomplished for you. Your righteousness, your works are as filthy rags. Nothing you can do can merit God's favor. But in fact, Jesus has done everything needed to make you beautiful and lovable to God. Why is it important for you to know that every day? It seems like kind of a a morbid Presbyterian way of thinking to get up in the morning and one of the first things you do, confess your sins to God. Why do we need to know this every day? Well, in 1 John chapter 4, John says, we love because he first loved us. The more you experience the love of God, the easier it will be to love him in return. Let's go back to our text, verses 8 through 13. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall be known fully, shall I know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Faith and when Jesus comes back and all things are made right, faith and hope are done with. Our faith will become sight, our hope will be reality, and what remains is love. Our love for God and our love for each other, this is the thing that continues on forever. And why do you exist? We're going to be working on our catechism next year, so get, re- get ready for this one. So why do you exist to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. You could put that a different way and say, I exist to love God And we love God only in as much as we have experienced his love. And how much does God love us? The Father loved us enough to send his Son to die for us. The Son loved us enough to leave the glory of heaven, to become a man. Jesus loved us enough to endure a life of temptation, sickness, and suffering so that we might be counted righteous. Jesus loved us enough to to endure the cross, death, and hell. And don't forget the Holy Spirit. Do you know how much the Holy Spirit must love us? 
to persevere in us, to endure our foolishness, <laughs> to endure this life with us, our sin and our struggles, and, and yet he is committed to our sanctification and to our faith. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit look at you and delight in you because in Christ you've been made beautiful. And if we don't live daily believing and hoping in that, if we aren't daily experiencing that truth, well, yeah, it's going to be hard to love God. But if you want to love God, if you want to be who God has made you to be, here's how to do it. Believe and hope that behind the veil you're already beautiful. Believe and hope that what Christ has done is all that needs to be done for you to be presented to the Father one day and to be received in his presence. The more you experience love from God, the easier it will be to love him in return. So if you believe and hope that Jesus has really finished the job, I believe you'll see yourself loving God more and more. The Christian life is a process of believing and hoping that behind the veil, you're already beautiful. And if you believe and hope that, you'll grow in your love for God, but that's not all. The more you experience the love of God, the better you'll love your neighbors too. Let's look at verses 1 through 7 again. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. You, get to, you may spend some time with family this week for Thanksgiving. This definition of love can be difficult at Thanksgiving time, I know. Where does this kind of love come from? This unconditional, patient, forgiving kind of love. How can we love the people that God has put in our family, in our workplace, in our church, and everywhere we go. Well, this kind of love that he describes here flows forth when we're experiencing the love of God in the gospel. Here's how. Think about your wife, your kids, your co-workers. Why would you be tempted to be impatient with them? Probably because they failed you in the past. And when they fail you again, you don't trust them. You don't want to be patient with them. You want them to do differently. Their past failure makes you doubt them. Is God impatient with you? No. He is supremely patient. Just look at how he, what he endured with Israel in their story, right? Well, why would you be boastful in relation to your co-workers? Or why would you insist on your own way with a family member? Well, clearly it's because you're so much better and more right than them, right? Wrong. Friends, if we would remember the gospel every day, if we get out of bed in the morning remembering, man, my sin is way worse than I realize, what does that mean for the people around me? It means I'm no different from them. I am absolutely no different from my kids, from my spouse, from my coworkers, my neighbors, even those who are unbelieving. The, the difference there is Christ has shown me grace. 
But if I'm living in light of that grace, remembering who I am apart from Christ, then I can't help but share grace with my neighbors. It's hard to be on your high horse when Jesus has knocked you off of it. Instead, knowing how greatly God loves a sinner like me gives me the ability to see my kids and my spouse and my coworkers differently. I don't expect them to be like Christ because they're like me. So I feel differently about their failures. I feel differently about their past. We believe something different about them, and we believe the gospel for them and on their behalf. Especially if they're Christians, we believe and hope that behind the veil they are beautiful in the same way that we are, and we call them to repent, to trust Christ, and to live in his love. So the Christian life is a process of believing and hoping that behind the veil you are beautiful, not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done. And if we can live in that place, it changes the way we feel about our neighbors. Jesus has done everything necessary to reconcile me to God, and that means he's done the same for you. That righteousness, reconciliation, and forgiveness are available to sinners. And because of that, when we trust Christ, he delights in us at all times. Well, perhaps you're here today and you've never felt truly forgiven by God. You've never felt truly loved by him. Don't leave today without knowing and experiencing that God deeply loves you, not because of anything you've done, but because of everything that Jesus did on your behalf. Christian, maybe you're here and you're still carrying guilt because of some secret sin or because of something in your past. God doesn't hold you accountable for that sin anymore. Christ bore your guilt and shame on the cross, and in his death he has removed it from you. So be free. Hold on to your guilt no longer because God does not hold it against you any longer. Christ was counted guilty so that you would be set free to know and enjoy the love of God. Forgive yourself because you've already been forgiven by God. If we would live in this way, believing and hoping that behind the veil we are already beautiful, imagine how that would affect your life. How greatly your love for God would grow. How greatly your love for the people around you would grow. How your life would change To become more like Jesus as you rest in what he has accomplished. The Christian life is a process of believing and hoping that behind the veil you and we are already beautiful. So brothers and sisters, trust this good news today.